0: I want to begin our time by asking the question, how many different baptisms does a Christian experience? One? Two? Three? It's not a trick question. And to answer it accurately, we first need to clarify what do we mean by baptism. Are we talking about John's baptism or repentance? Are we talking about believer's baptism expressed in our unity in Christ? Are we talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes place at conversion? Are we talking about the baptism of fire or judgment? The New Testament isn't short on words when it comes to speaking of baptisms and understanding what they are is no small matter. And we're going to have an opportunity to distinguish Uh, these baptisms but our focus will actually be on one of the most unique baptisms that has ever occurred a baptism like no other and one that should intrigue us as we consider the roles that the godhead played in the lord jesus Christ's baptism what active roles did the godhead play the trinity uh, fulfill in jesus's baptism and why should it be important to us Our passage today answers these questions. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And let's read verses 9 through 11, the account of Christ's baptism together. Starting in verse 9, it says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. In the Greek text, it's only 53 words right here. And in this English translation that I just read, it's 57 words. Yet, as short as it is, there are some deep theological insights that we'll see as all three members of the Godhead. We're involved in this unique event of Christ's baptism. We have three verses and three members of the Godhead. And this breaks down very nicely for us. Verse 9 features the suffering servant role as the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to baptism. Verse 10 allows us to see the active role of the Holy Spirit as he descended upon Jesus. Verse 11 allows us to see our Heavenly Father's role in response as he identifies Jesus as his son and as the source of his pleasure. Well, let's start by focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9 in our first point. The Lord Jesus Christ submitted to baptism. And look at the beginning of verse 9. It reads, in those days, and the phrase in those days will allow us to take some time to consider baptism during this time period. And it will also allow us to survey different baptisms beyond this point. And I provided the list in your bulletin, and I didn't even look at the bulletin. Are they in there for you? They're listed for you? Thank you, publishing team, for making that happen. And the reason I provided you the list so that you could see the broad scope of New Testament baptisms. And also the baptisms that came um, in those days up, up to this point. In last week's message, we learned that there was a baptism for those who were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. From the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, the Hebrew people were the chosen people of God. And so for anyone to have a relationship or come to an understanding of God, they either were born a Hebrew or they had to convert to Judaism. And here's where we're going to introduce ourselves to the term proselyte. In the simplest sense, this word means convert. It's from the Septuagint, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Proselytic is uh, a translation of the word convert. A non-Hebrew person becoming a Hebrew by faith is called a convert or a proselyte. And my research this week included me speaking to one of my old uh, seminary professors who actually taught me how to translate Hebrew and it revealed some interesting facts. Did you know that there were some god who never became Hebrews? There were some god who never became Hebrew uh, uh, j- Jews. The only way for a person... Uh, the, well, the Old Testament law didn't require god to become Hebrews. They could identify with Yahweh without becoming part of the covenant people. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't a plan of salvation. That's what I'm trying to communicate. And I know this is going to rock the boat for some, right? and it's going to intrigue you a little bit, but it wasn't a plan for salvation, but of God's terms and special arrangement to live with the Hebrews. So men like Melchizedek in Abraham's time, Job a century or so later, the Queen of Sheba, possibly the authors of Proverbs 30 and 31, and any other God-fearing Gentiles were not required to become Hebrews to come into a right relationship with God. Interestingly, the rabbis even understood that the Mosaic law was not for Gentiles and that those among the nations who feared the Lord were only obligated to keep the code of Noah. And by the way, you may have noticed that I've opted to add emphasis to Hebrew instead of Jew. The term Jew doesn't show up until there's only one tribe of Judah left. And it was abbreviated for, to represent those who were from Judea. And so technically Moses wasn't a Jew, nor was David or Samuel, but they were Hebrews, if we go by that clear distinction. Now that line gets greatly blurred today, but looking at the Bible, it's helpful to understand the distinction Now, for those who converted and wanted to be practicing Hebrews according to Mosaic law, it did require them to validate their faith in three distinct ways. Mosaic law required them to offer a sacrifice, to be circumcised if they were male, and in most instances, a baptismal cleansing. And I say in most instances because we're going to talk more about that. The animal sacrifice was uh, heifer- or two turtle doves, and it was brought to the priest and given as a burnt offering to God. The next thing that would have to take place is that males would have to be circumcised. Typically, this took place for Jews when they were just eight days old. And so the pain was not remembered. But for those who wanted to become a Hebrew proselyte, they had to go undergo that procedure regardless of their age. And there's some research that indicates that this sort of conversion to Judaism didn't start until sometime in the intertestamental period. More conservative rabbis would would basically say people had to be circumcised while there were more liberal leaders, such as those leading the temple who required only a sacrifice and baptism. So I just wanted to throw that in as a footnote. After their animal sacrifice, and typically after their circumcision healed, the proselyte would then go through a final step, which was a baptism or a cleansing. With their clothes removed, they had to fully immerse their body into water. When the males were baptized, the priest was present. When females were baptized, they were attended by other females, while the priest or the rabbi stood outside the door. And you won't find a Bible verse describing the baptism in the Old Testament. And the reason is, is that all the water cleansings were developed under what is called the, the mikvah laws. Okay? While the Hebrew word mikvah means literally a collection or a gathering together in a baptism sense or context, excuse me, it refers to a gathering or a pool of water for the purpose of ritual cleansing. Jews often practice mikveh baptism at different times, sometimes right before they uh, entered the temple in Hebrew faith and practice, baptism was not a once for all activity like it is for us in the Christian faith. there was a, a cleansing aspect which was especially noted for Gentile converts so though I showed last week and, and you may recall that I shared this um, that hebrews for Hebrews to be Baptized was a shocking transition. I want to clarify that there were a few instances where baptismal cleansing occurred. Without question, it would require humility and it would have closely associated this practice with Gentile converts. No one knows exactly when these baptisms started to take place, but it was before the time of Jesus. We know this because debates on the subject of proselyte baptism are recorded between the rabbinic schools of Shammai and Hillel, both contemporaries of Jesus. Whereas the school of Shammai stressed circumcision as the point of transition, the school of Hillel considered baptism most important because it portrayed spiritual cleansing and the beginning of new life. Ultimately, the Hillel view prevailed and this is reflected in a collection of the Jewish rabbinical writings called the Talmud. The second baptism that you'll see in your notes associated with this time period is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 10, which I labeled Israel's baptism into Moses. This was not a literal baptism, but it's spoken of figuratively in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, which reads as follows. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. The Greek word in the expression baptized into Moses is our word baptizo which means to immerse and if you have a MacArthur study Bible you can look down at Note uh, the the verse notes on verse two, and it provides clarity when it shares when it shares Israel was immersed not in the sea but into Moses, indicating their oneness or solidarity with him as their leader. Through the Mosaic covenant, God's people were blessed as Moses led them. Well, the third baptism in this time period should be very familiar to us because we discussed it at length last week. It was the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance. And we learn that this baptism prepared God's people for the arrival of Christ. All those in Judea, all those in Jerusalem, they they were coming out to the desert wilderness to hear the word of God as John was preaching and was on the scene after 400 years of silence And this led them to a place of repentance and confession of their sinfulness. And after confessing their sins to God, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River, which served as a symbolic reminder to cleanse their lives from sinful practices and to focus on the promised Savior, who John said was coming. The fourth baptism that would take place, and this is now beyond this time, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it would begin at Pentecost, and this is just—it's going to be about three years, roughly over three years later, when believers' hearts were regenerated and converted, when they repented and trusted in Christ in salvation, they experience a spirit baptism that doesn't involve water. First Corinthians, excuse me, twelve thirteen says, "For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks." Whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. What this verse is saying is that we were all immersed into the body of Christ when we underwent this spirit baptism. And our immersion in the Holy Spirit serves as the basis of our unity in Christ. We're baptized into the body. We're baptized as brothers and sisters in Christ. We become brothers and sisters in God's adopted family. Well, the fifth baptism that would take place in this time, uh, beyond this time period, excuse me, is believer's baptism, which everyone in our church will be very familiar with. As a distinct part of the Great Commission, and we even have the passage right up here under our pillar, Progressing in Evangelism and Discipleship, there's a command that comes in that passage that says that we are to make disciples. And then there are three words that kind of describe what that looks like. The first word or participle that comes with this command-type force is as you are going. Some translations say go. You're, you're to go make disciples. Then it says uh, baptizing them, okay? And that describes what it means to make disciples. And then the third participle is teaching them. Baptizing disciples of Christ In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this helps us to see that it isn't speaking to spirit baptism, but rather is a baptism that identifies a believer with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit through the work of the Son. And here the Greek word baptizo is used again, and it's speaking of immersion. The early and continued practice of the church was to encourage both Jew and Gentile to trust in Christ by faith and repentance, and then be baptized by immersion. We see examples of this in Acts 2.36 and following, and Acts 8.12 and following, and really throughout the book of Acts. And believers' baptism by immersion is what we teach here at Cornerstone. And so if you're somebody who's come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have yet to be baptized, we offer an opportunity for you to profess your faith publicly and to be obedient to that call, uh, God's call in your life, to be baptized at our annual church retreat. It correlates to dispensational theology. And I say that because during this church age, during this dispensation, this is what we believe the church's uh, um, responsibility is to, to teach. That It commands us uh, to, to make disciples and to have them be baptized by immersion. You will notice in your notes that I did include infant baptism. And there's a school of covenantal theology that teaches that baptizing infants is a biblical practice, yet we would not agree. The New Testament doesn't provide a single example of an infant being baptized. And if you desire to learn more about this, you can actually go online and hear a discussion that takes place between uh, Dr. John MacArthur and Dr. R.C. Sproul. You can search those two names, search infant baptism, and it's bound to come up. And they'll, they'll basically represent the sides, uh, John MacArthur, on dispensational theology, and and R.C. Sproul on covenantal theology, and you can decide for yourself um, the the biblical uh, view as it relates to baptism. And you'll notice that I said typically, as dispensational theology doesn't necessarily require baptism by immersion, nor does covenantal theology necessarily require infant baptism, but in most cases it's true that dispensationalists do practice immersion and most covenantalists do practice sprinkling. But neither baptism is essential to either view. So I also just wanted to provide that. Well, number six on our list is this. And this is definitely beyond the time period of of what's being mentioned in our verse today. And it's the baptism of fire in God's judgment. And I I want us to see this. And I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which ironically is a parallel passage describing Jesus' baptism. And I want to read these verses, and here is what John the Baptist says starting in verse 11. It's going to sound very familiar, parallels with the account that we studied last week. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. You may notice last week he, it said the thong of his sandal, right? And so the, the, the point remains the same. The foot washers were the lowest of slaves. And whether you touch the, song, the thong of the sandal at the center between the toe or touch the, the, the actual sandal itself, the, the point remains the same. He considered himself unworthy. And then he says this about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Our passage last week did not include this aspect of fire when speaking of how Jesus would baptize. And it was fitting to save the explanation until now. Those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we learned last week, will be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. But here we also see another baptism that the Lord Jesus Christ will execute as the eternal judge. Just as Revelation 2014 reveals, unbelievers will be cast into, or if we want to use a word from Matthew 3:11, baptizo, they will be immersed into the eternal lake of fire. And this will be the final and last of all baptisms. The baptism of judgment for those who do not repent. And trust completely in Christ for salvation. And that certainly serves as a wake-up call for us, doesn't it, church? Uh, that, that, that people have no desire to have a relationship with God. The, the world in which we live is pursuing their own course. They're, they're running from him. And really, we've defined this before, that all hell is is a place that they really wanted. That they they want to go because they want to do things their way. They don't want anything to do with God. And God ultimately, when somebody is condemned to hell, gives them what they wanted and what they expressed their whole life. They don't want anything to do with him. They want to run towards their sin. They want to live life according to their plan and their purposes. Wow, we have to be burdened by this truth. We have to... We have to be urgent with the gospel, do we not, church? We have, to, we have to, and we're going to talk more about this too as we consider the implications of our study today. But we, we, we need people to see their need for forgiveness, that they need to fall on their face and recognize that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way that you can stand before God when you die is to be made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. And his imputed righteousness, the holy one, the perfect one. That you have to turn from living for your own purposes and your own sinful and selfish desires. And you have to turn and and trust the Lord and follow the Lord. I'm grateful to be at a church where we get a chance to exalt the gospel week in and week out. Well, I do hope that this overview of baptisms blessed you and that it gives you a sense of the progression and the chronology of the different types that are listed. They are important to understand because all of them are connected to Christ in varying degrees according to God's redemptive plan. But there's still one baptism that we need to finish discussing, the baptism of Jesus Christ himself, which is like no other. And we need to see the significance of his baptism. Verse 9 continues, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And there's so much that's significant behind this narrative, which will involve us looking out beyond this verse to understand it. But here are five factors that Jesus fulfilled when he submitted to baptism. First, Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel when he was baptized. In John one thirty one, the Apostle John records this statement from John the Baptist. I did not recognize him, John says, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. As we learned last week, whichever man the forerunner identified would would be the Messiah. That was his responsibility to, to build the bridge from the ministry of the Old Testament to the ministry of the New. And John the Baptist constructed it, or the Lord used John the Baptist as an instrument in his hands to construct it. And here we learn that the Lord specifically used John's baptism ministry to pre- present Jesus as the Christ to the nation of Israel. The second significance of Jesus' baptism and why it's important for us to understand we see in Mark eleven, twenty-seven through thirty three, Jesus established his authority through it. Listen to this exchange between Christ and the Pharisees in Mark eleven, verses twenty-seven through thirty-three. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? And they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do things. Lesson, you don't ever want to get into a chess match with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You don't. And, and they're, they're coming to challenge his authority, and the Lord responds in wisdom, and he says, checkmate, and puts an end to their game. And as we learned last week, the testimony of John's life validated his ministry as the forerunner. And so the Pharisees couldn't say anything critical about John without enraging the people. And when John pointed to Christ, this also affirmed Jesus' authority that the Pharisees simply did not want to accept. Number three, the significance of Jesus' baptism also revealed the Lord's ongoing submission to the Father's will here i could have there's a number of passages that i'm sure even come to mind as you think about jesus expressing this i selected john 6:38 where jesus says for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me christ's submission to baptism is important for a number of reasons yet the most foundational is that it reflects christ's ongoing commitment to the father's will and here the suffering servant reveals a continued heart of submission, and his baptism inaugurates the beginning of his earthly ministry. And though Christ technically began his suffering when he left heaven, where he was worshipped night and day, where there was no uh, atmosphere of sin, and his suffering was initiated, we're going to see that as he takes on and accepts his role as the sin bearer, that his suffering is only going to intensify. The Lord's willingness to submit to baptism reflects. This reality, which we'll see develop even more in Numbers four and five. Number four shares this: the significance of Christ's baptism also identified Jesus with our sin. John the Baptist makes this connection for us when he first saw Christ approaching him to be baptized, and this is recorded in John chapter one, verse twenty-nine. It says, "This the next day." John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Immediately, John made a connection with Christ, the Messiah, the one who would save, as the sin bearer. And through divine revelation, John the Baptist was allowed to see and identify Jesus as the Messiah. And not only this, but Jesus also asked John to baptize him. Who had Who had John been baptizing? Who, who had, yeah, a couple. Of you almost said the the, the Jews. Maybe it's the Hebrews. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. It's, um, but that's right. He he had been um, baptizing uh, Hebrew men and women who were coming out to the wilderness. Who were doing what? They were confessing their sins. They were brought to a place of repentance. And like a movie. John was looking, and here all of a sudden he sees the Messiah coming, walking towards him. And you can imagine, you know, music playing in the background. And this is the fulfillment, one of the greatest moments. This is the culmination of the bridge being built from the Old to the New Testament. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes up and says, yeah, I need you to do something. I need you to baptize me. You know, like the music's playing and you hear the screech of the record? That's what John, John, John the Baptist is like, come again? You, 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 you need me to do what? You need me to do what? In Matthew 3.14, it even says, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? From John's perspective, this didn't make any sense. For the Messiah, the sinless one, to be baptized. But the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. And he wants us to see it as well. He was identifying with sinners. With you. With me. And he was doing it so that one day we could be able to identify with him. The Lord Jesus Christ submitted to baptism so that he could be immersed in the identification with our sin. Completely covered in it. Covered with it. Identifying with it. So that we could be immersed in his righteousness. No sin could escape the sin bearer. He would identify himself with every single one of our sins. Past, present, and future. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Number five, Jesus did it to fulfill all righteousness. And he shares this with John the Baptist in Matthew 3.15 when the Lord says, Permit it at this time. Literally, permit it only now, one time. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was immersed in his identification with our sins so that repenting sinners could be immersed in his righteousness. And this is spelled out for us clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where God the Father says, says these words exactly. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. The Apostle Paul speaking as, uh, as, as, a, as an authority as the Holy Spirit led him to record God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's baptism provides this significant picture and there's a prof- profound number of implications for us. His immersion paved the way for our immersion. His immersion in identifying with our sin our depravity, our foolishness, our wickedness, was so that we could be immersed in his righteousness, in his holiness, in his truth. When we immerse ourselves in his righteousness, that takes any personal self-righteousness out of the equation. It should help us to mortify any and all thoughts of personal pride or any spiritual self-promotion or worthiness. Like the songwriter pen, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I'll stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Sinking sand. Sinking sand. Your life, my life without Christ can be defined and summed up with two words. Sinking sand. Apart from him, we can do... We can do what? Nothing. We can do nothing spiritually. Nothing of value. Yet it doesn't end here for the Christian. Christ also wants us to exalt the gospel and his righteousness by us being living testimonies to the world that surrounds us. And what does this look like practically? We we will immerse ourselves in him. We will be immersed in Him. I have a question for you. If I could have your eyes, I'd love it. What will you immerse yourself in this week? I want you to think about that question. What what will you immerse yourself in this week? What will consume most of your time and attention? The Lord knows we have responsibilities with work and school, our families, the toil of man, which consumes much of our time. Yet how can we plan our weeks so that we can be immersed in Christ? And we're responsible. We're responsible for a a spiritual environment no matter what place we may find ourselves in. At work, at school, at the gym, with friends, at basketball practice we have the opportunity to create that environment. We can spend our time praying and communing with God. When we're immersed in Christ, our spiritual lenses, they're going to stay sharp and focused. Who, who can I reach with the gospel? Who can I start a Bible study with? Who can I make a disciple Who can I make a follower and a learner of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who has God granted me access to? How do you want me to redeem my time this week, Lord? How? How? Contrary to what the world teaches, there is no such thing as free time for us as believers. There's only blood-bought time only blood-bought time that we're called to redeem. So think about it. This is a challenge to my own heart, just even as I was writing this message. What am I going to be immersed with this week? Will it be Facebook? Will it be March Madness? Will it be Pinterest? Probably not for me. Maybe for Victoria. Will it be movies? Will it be uh, time and attention focused on material things and material pursuits? Will I be more focused on working out at the gym than exercising the spiritual disciplines that will help me become more immersed in Christ? And I've shared this before and I'll say it again. If you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. You'll hit it every time. But as believers, we know that if we aim at Christ, there's nothing more fulfilling. He serves as the foundation of our joy and our contentment. Yet on this side of the cross, we have to do what? We have to fight for it. It's a battle. There's a war going on. We have to fight for that immersion. We have to fight for it. What will you do? and I allow ourselves to be immersed in this week? I hope we can take that question home with us today. We're looking at the active roles that the Trinity fulfilled that made Jesus' baptism a -a one-of-a-kind testimony and why it's important that we understand the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to baptism and we just considered its significance. Verse 10 helps us to understand the Holy Spirit's role. Verse 10 says, Immediately, Coming out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And again, this is a baptism like no other. I don't know about you, but when I went through my baptism, when I came up out of the water, I did not see the heavens opening up, nor did I see the Holy Spirit descend. Ding upon me like a dove, okay? And I'm pretty sure that you didn't have the same experience. This was unique to Christ's baptism. And what was very significant was the Spirit's return because Second Temple Judaism commonly believed that with the cessation of the great Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit had ceased speaking directly to God's people. The absence of the Holy Spirit quenched prophecy. And they had just experienced 400 years of silence. As one commentator shares, the opening of the heavens at Christ's baptism inaugurates the long-awaited return of God's Spirit. A period of grace begins in Jesus in which God reveals himself in the world in an unparalleled manner. The Holy Spirit was active again in prophecy. and Christ's baptism is also where we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit expand in the New Testament. And we'll share more about that under letter C. But we need to address letter B first. The Spirit's unity with Christ. Verse 10 says that Christ saw the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And most translations use that word, descending, which is a, is a good word. And it's followed by one of two prepositions, typically. Descending on or upon. But the Greek intensifies the union of Jesus and the Spirit and literally says the Spirit was descending Into him. Indicating Jesus' complete filling and equipping for ministry by the Spirit. The description of the Holy Spirit is also important to clarify here. This was the person of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove into Christ. the, The person. It wasn't a dove representing the Holy Spirit. That was coming down. It was the person of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And Luke 3.22 even clarifies this for us when he he wrote, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And if you go into Christian stores today, Christian artwork, you know, got some Hobby Lobby sisters out there, I'm sure. You're always going to see pictures of this scene, and and, and, and it's a picture of a dove coming down at Jesus' baptism. And it's not accurate, nor does it honor the Holy Spirit. And I would imagine that the reason that they chose to draw a picture of a dove, it's a little bit easier. I'm not an artist, but I would imagine it's probably a little bit easier to draw a dove than it is a spirit being... That you have no idea what it looks like, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to go option A, the dove, which I know. Option B, a spirit being that I've never seen. Hmm, that's probably why it works out. But the point that we need to see is that the Holy Spirit and Christ were completely unified. And this really serves as an example for us as Christ was spirit-filled and spirit-led in his earthly ministry. And this assists our understanding of letter C, the Spirit's filling and equipping of Christ for earthly ministry. The active role of the Holy Spirit was to fill Christ and to lead Christ, which ultimately provides a firsthand view of the Holy Spirit's expanded role for New Testament Christians. In the Old Testament, it was common, we see this, for the Holy Spirit to empower somebody to do something. But in the New Testament, there's an expanded role. The Holy Spirit seals believers, the Holy Spirit fiel- fills believers, and the Holy Spirit leads believers. It's expanded to seal and dwell and lead Christians in their daily walks. And we see evidence of this when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. In Luke 4.1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. We could preach an entire sermon on that, and we will the next time that we are back in Mark, because the temptation in the wilderness is our next passage up to study in Mark's account. But for now, it's important for us to see and understand the Holy Spirit's role in Christ's baptism. Christ's humanity would be spirit-filled and spirit-led from the moment of his baptism onward. And I know that's got your mind rattled a little bit, too, because the, 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 the... kenosis and the incarnation right and the deity and how that all work we're gonna have a chance to talk about that the next time that we meet well, we'll spend more time on that in our in our study of our next passage. but our time's running out and there's still one important role that we must consider and that is the role of our heavenly father look at the beginning of verse 11 it says this and a voice came out of the heavens you are my beloved son and here it's implied that it's the Father who is the one speaking because of what is said, and some have wondered if others could hear the audible voice of the Father, and we safely assume that we can safely assume that they can, because the Father identifying the Son is one of the primary purposes for the inclusion of this passage and the declaration of John the Baptist, "This is the Son of God," and John one verses thirty-one through thirty-four also implies that he heard it too. And here, the father is directly identifying Jesus as his son with an audible voice from heaven. As one commentator shares, to no prophet had words been spoken such as the words to Jesus at the baptism. Abraham was called a friend of God in Isaiah 41.8. Moses a servant of God in Deuteronomy thirty four five, Aaron a chosen one of God in Psalm one hundred five twenty six, David, a man after God's own heart in first Samuel thirteen fourteen, and Paul an apostle in Romans one one, but only one has heard the direct and audible voice of the Father saying, You are my beloved son. And the world would be shocked by this announcement. And it was further validation to the Roman Gentile audience to whom Mark was recording this account for. That the one true God disclosed in the opening verse was affirmed directly to be divine by a divine voice from heaven. And on two other occasions, such an audible voice spoke of Jesus from heaven. One... At the transfiguration in Mark nine seven, which we're going to get a chance to study at a later point, and during the Passion Week as recorded in John twelve twenty eight. I thought this was really cool as the Lord orchestrated us to study his baptism at the beginning of the Passion Week. That it was the beginning of his ministry, and at the end of the Passion Week we also are going to hear from from the Father speaking to the Son. They serve really as bookends. For us. Verse 11 finishes with the Father saying, In you I am well pleased. And some interpret the verb form well pleased as referring to Jesus' pre existent life with the Father. Others to his perfect life upon earth until the time of his baptism. Still others to the fact that he had voluntarily accepted baptism. It seems best to take this as a timeless statement, indicating that the Father had always been pleased with the Son and was still pleased with him. In him, the Father found perfect satisfaction and delight. And as one theologian shares, it is a delight that never had a beginning and will never have an end. And the phrase, in whom I am well pleased, also makes a divine assertion and a connection to Isaiah fifty-three eleven, where it says this about the Messiah. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So the anguish of whose soul? Christ's soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. The Father will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. F.F. F. Bruce concludes that this indicates that His messiahship was to be realized in terms of the portrayal of the suffering servant. Humble, obedient, accomplishing his mission by passing through death and committing his vindication confidently to God. The father now expressed his supreme delight in the son as he assumed his redemptive mission to which he had just committed himself in his baptism. What's our takeaway, church, from this verse? God the Father loves those who love the Son. God the Father takes pleasure in those who take pleasure in His Son. And on the flip side, God the Father hates those who despise and disregard or find displeasure in His Son. And what we love defines who we are. And I wanted to make a connection for us so that we could t- to relate to God just as it relates to his pleasure in his son. And what that means for us as followers of Christ. What that means for us of those who have been baptized in his blood. Does God find pleasure in you? Does God find pleasure, Christian, in you? Over the course of my study, I came across something that Pastor John Piper wrote. And I was trying to include a portion of it because I knew it was going to be at the end of the service. And it's so good. It's so good that I I had to include the the whole quote. It'll take me a minute to read, but I want you to track with this because this is so, so good. He writes... Does God find pleasure in you? When he looks at you, does he smile? In short, if you're in Christ, the answer is yes. But the answer to how and why and on what basis needs some explaining. We can break God's delight for the redeemed into three categories. A delight in election, a delight in redemption, and a delight in holiness. First, God has expressed delight in His children in election unconditionally and freely, without a hint of injustice or unfairness. God chooses to set His delight on certain human souls, and this delight is an expression of the delight of the triune god luke ten twenty one God freely delights in electing children for redemption and for adoption into his family romans nine ten and eight ten through eighteen ephesians one three through six such a predestined delight over us in election is unconditional to anything in us second god delights in the redemption of his elect in christ luke 15:7 and this delight hinges on the perfect work of christ and the application of his work to the elect by faith in space and time even down to the display of our saving faith pleases god hebrews 11:6 And once his children are set free from the legal demands of righteousness and stand forever justified by their union to Christ, God sings over them a song of delight. Zephaniah 3, verses 14 through 17. Think of the angel's joy in heaven over the redemption of one sinner. And think of the father's overflowing party of delight lavished on his prodigal son. Similarly, when the elect are redeemed, God's heart is drawn to eternal delight. Over you and for you, Luke fifteen eleven through twenty four. Third, God delights in sincere obedience. In one of the most mysterious and profound realities in the universe. The Father's delight in Jesus was increased after the Incarnation as Jesus matured, Luke 2.52. Think about it. By his obedience to the will of the Father, the Son abides in the delight of his Father. It is a biblical truth that leaves me mystified. No mystery, however, is the pattern of Jesus we follow in obedience. And by our obedience, we abide in God's love and God delights in our holiness, John fourteen twenty one 24 in true obedience, we experience the abiding love of Christ and increasing joy of God. John fifteen nine through eleven. For example, humility is beautifully attractive to God. Humility catches His eye. The broken, humble heart draws God close and induces His delight. James four eight through ten, Isaiah fifty seven fifteen, Psalm thirty four eighteen. Sin works in the opposite direction. Delight is contrary to grief. And like any loving father, God is genuinely grieved by our sin. Ephesians 4.30, Hebrews 12.3-11 through 11. Disobedience in us contradicts his eternal redeeming purposes over us. In a very real way, by our disobedience, we declare sin more delightful than God. How can such a move not pain him? The father who has elected and redeemed his children is genuinely grieved by our sin and genuinely delighted in our holiness. That was a lot to take in. I think I'm going to email that out for everyone to have an opportunity just in case you didn't capture all of those verses. But at each stage, God's delight for us, Piper goes on to say and describe, is like a growing fire. Stronger and stronger and hotter and hotter over time, building to a day where we'll stand in moral radiance and perfect Christ like perfection. 1 John 3 2. What a day. What a day. And here we are on this side of the, cr- the cross, and we we would be remiss if we didn't consider the reality that as God looks down upon us, as He sees us faithfully serving Him and His purposes, that that he doesn't take delight in that. He does. He does. He does. He does. (coughs) What active roles did the Trinity fulfill that made Jesus' baptism a -a one-of-a-kind testimony for us? And why is it important that we understand? I hope that in great measure, God's word served you and I well today. Let's pray and thank him for it.